The Ruth Page School of Dance at the Ruth Page Center for the Arts provides the highest level of training to young dancers and professionals. Register now for the school's Summer Dance Workshop, a two-week program for beginning dancers ages 7 to 14, with no audition required. For more information, visit ruthpage.org. Dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. And I'm Amy Brandt. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we're going to begin, as usual, with our headline rundown, which will include both Ukraine-related stories and also news from other parts of the dance world. Then we will discuss a fantastic essay by choreographer and educator Sydney Mosley about what COVID safe dance actually looks like right now and how dance organizations can implement compassionate protocols. And finally, we'll talk about fashion's embrace of the ballet aesthetic. Ballet core just continues to be everywhere and how the trend ignores some of the less pretty realities of the art form. That's a lot of meaty topics, so let's get right into our also quite substantive headline rundown. The Opera House in the western Ukrainian city of Lviv has started performances again. The ballet company performed Zell earlier this month with a limited audience of 300 because of limited space in the theater's bomb shelter. Even so, the performance was sold out. So, signs of hope, although I have also heard that there have been a few attacks in Lviv recently, so... but. You've got to give those dancers and directors credit for keeping the lights on. Yeah, I just wanted to read this one quote from the opera's artistic director. We understand that light must defeat darkness, that life must defeat death, and the mission of the theater is to assert this, end quote. And yeah, making that assertion is sometimes an act of real courage. Yeah. Um, Speaking of acts of great courage, Nazar Shaskov, a ballroom dance instructor in Mariupol, has transported nearly 100 of his students and others in need out of the besieged city in recent weeks, using the van he formerly used to ferry dancers to competitions. He says he's had some scary encounters with pro-Russia soldiers and has dodged shrapnel while going behind enemy lines, but nevertheless, he's made more than nine trips in and out of the city. Wow. Pretty incredible. Yeah. The Associated Press reports that foreign-born dancers who have fled Russia since its invasion of Ukraine say the war is pulling Russian ballet back to the isolation of the Soviet era. The story talks to American dancer Adrian Blake Mitchell and Slovakian dancer Andrea Lasakova, who both recently left Russia's Mikhailovsky Ballet. They say most of their international friends have left and that many Russian dancers want to leave. Did you want to talk about your involvement? I am quoted in this article, yes. Um, Yes, I did speak to the writer about, you know, how many foreign dancers were in Russia at the time. And I kind of guesstimated, I wasn't really sure, I just kind of guesstimated 100 or less, specifically Western Europe, North and South America, countries like Japan, as opposed to, you know, I know there are a lot of Eastern Bloc countries, uh, dancers from Eastern Bloc countries have been dancing in Russia for a very long time. And I'm really unsure of how many of them there are, and if they are leaving as well. Yeah, complicated questions there. It's always good to see your name and to see Point's name in, in news stories, though. Thanks. Here is another story on the theme of art's political power. The Voloshki Ukrainian Dance Ensemble, which is based outside of Philadelphia, 
is working to counter Russian disinformation campaigns by showing Ukraine in a positive light um, through their performances, which, by the way, includes some political satire and politically charged allegorical storytelling. They aim to teach U.S. audiences about Ukrainian history and culture. So Dan says diplomacy once again. Mm-hmm. An appellate court has ruled that New York City Ballet will have to face dancer Alexandra Waterbury's claims that the company failed to protect her during a photo-sharing scandal, reversing a 2020 ruling dismissing the charges against the company. The court found that Waterbury had, in fact, sufficiently alleged that New York City Ballet knew of its employer's harmful propensities, failed to take appropriate action, and caused her harm. Yeah, this is major news. Um, We have a link to a a Jezebel story about it in the show notes. You can find more information. Final Bell for Yellowface, the organization dedicated to eliminating Asian caricature and Orientalism from the stage, has launched the Gold Standard Arts Foundation. The new endeavor aims to support Asian creatives who want to collaborate in dance and the broader performing arts. And one of the foundation's first priorities is the survey on racial representation in professional ballet that it recently launched. Um, Asian American perspectives are a focus of the survey, but not the exclusive focus. So we have a link to that survey as well as to Dance Magazine's story about the Gold Standard Arts Foundation in the show notes. The National Ballet of Canada's 2022-23 season, Hope Muir's first as artistic director, will feature world premieres by Wayne McGregor and Rena Butler, as well as Canadian premieres by David Dawson and Alonzo King. McGregor's new work in particular sounds interesting, Mad Adam, which is a collaboration with author Margaret Atwood and is based on her trilogy Oryx and Crake, The Year of the Flood, and Mad Adam. And yet another leadership transition is underway in the dance world. Aaron Maddox, the director of programming at New York City's Joyce Theater for the past four years, will be stepping down this July. Maddox helped diversify the Joyce's programming, I mean, diversify in multiple senses during his tenure, and he's really well-liked and respected in the dance community. So the search for his replacement is now underway. I will be interested to see where he ends up. Yeah, same. Um, And here's some distressing news. A statue of ballerina Marjorie Tallchief was stolen from museum grounds of Tulsa's Historical Society and Museum, hacked apart, and sold for scrap. The sculpture was one of five depicting Oklahoma's five moons, or the five Native American ballerinas that originated in the state. According to the New York Times, the statue is valued at $120,000, and parts of it were sold at a recycling center for $266. It's just... Why? I know. Why? There's like no sense or logic to this story. I'm so baffled by it. Um, Here's another sort of mystifying story. Many cast members of the West End production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cinderella were angry and frustrated after finding out on social media that the show's run was ending. Though current cast members of the show were told about its early closure following a performance, the story began to appear on Twitter and in the press before all performers had heard the news, and that included members of an incoming cast who were due to start in a few weeks and now will not have a chance to perform at all. The show's production company said in a statement that, quote, every effort was made, end quote, to inform performers prior to public announcements, but clearly not quite enough effort. Yeah, not good. Scottish Ballet has launched a new dance initiative in the Orkney Islands to help those with multiple sclerosis improve their physical and mental health. Uh, The Orkney Islands, which I've actually had the pleasure of visiting, are kind of on the northernmost coast of Scotland. They have the highest prevalence of MS in the world. 
studies have shown that dance classes can help with balance, fatigue, gait, coordination, lower limb strength, and cognitive performance. So it's a really great initiative Scottish Ballet is starting. Yeah. Yeah. And here's a little more good news for this week where we're really in need of good news. Um, the British company Pavilion Dance Southwest has helped create a vibrotactile dance floor that allows audiences to feel the dance they're watching. Um, it was initially conceived as a way to sort of bridge the gap between the live dance experience and the screen dance experience that we were limited to during shutdowns. The idea is even if you're watching a film of a dance, this floor will allow you to sense the vibrations that would accompany jumping and footfalls during a live performance. And it's also sort of a beautiful technology in terms of accessibility, allowing, for example, deaf audience members and artists to respectively experience and create dance in this augmented way. It's so cool. Yeah, that sounds really neat. Okay, so moving on to our discussion segments. First up today, we want to get into an essay that ran in Dance Magazine recently that grapples with how dance organizations are and should be navigating the pandemic at this point. Because it hasn't ended, it truly might never end, so we can't keep waiting for a return to some former normal. So friend of the pod, Sydney Mosley, who's an artist activist and educator and founder of the collective SLM Dances, she wrote this piece, which is characteristically insightful and just deeply humane. And in it, she talks about the guidelines that she and her collective have established to help them resume studio practice, guidelines that recognize not only the risks they're taking themselves, but also their responsibility to protect the most vulnerable people in their communities. So it's really a collective care approach to COVID safety. Yeah, and I feel like I'm reminded every day that this pandemic is really not over. Nope. Um, But yeah, she really beautifully illuminates how her dance organization has had to accept ways in which to live with the virus in order to continue creating and collaborating. And really, I don't know, what I got out of it was really this responsibility to communicate really clearly and effectively and immediately when it comes to COVID health protocols. Like at the end of the, at the end of her essay, she kind of lays out um, some advice for uh, people in different positions in the art industries, you know, and I feel like one thing that just kind of comes across is, you know, having a really clear plan and policies in place that you put out there right away so that there's no <laughs> issues that arise later because she was sort of saying there is a lot of vague, you know, from place, every place has a different type of policy and they're somewhat vague about it at times and how that just makes things more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, I mean, the fact that we as a society have not really arrived at a, a medical or a legal agreement as to what COVID safe, quote unquote, actually means. Yeah, it puts the burden of figuring that out on individuals, on mm-hmm. organizations, smaller organizations like SLM dances, um, which is frustrating and sad. But it's also, as Sydney says, an opportunity for us to think critically about what we really want from our COVID guidelines, what our our goals are. Mm-hmm. Because while, you know, science is obviously an important part of the process when you're determining protocols, there are other aspects too. Safety and health are not limited to physical safety and physical health. And right. different people value different things and feel safe taking at different risk levels. And that's another thing that makes that continuous communication so important mm-hmm. is you have to know at all times how the people you're interacting with are feeling about what their mental state is in addition to what their physical health needs might be. Yeah. There's a great quote I I highlighted. It says, we know 
that what is allowed legally, what an individual feels comfortable with, and the actual calculated risks that a person takes in order to attend to whatever is essential in their own lives does not equal what is actually scientifically safest. So that was kind of illuminating. Yeah. Another part of the essay that I liked was when Sydney mentioned that she's encouraged members of her collective not to talk about strict protocols, but instead to use the phrases abundance of caution or abundance yeah. of care, because it's not that we're being denied something as strict implies. It's that we're trying to extend as much protection as possible to as many people as possible. It's actually a generous act. Um, I thought that was a really, mm-hmm. a really important way of, of framing the process. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, we we all have to think carefully about how we navigate the world as it exists now, instead of just muddling through and, and banking on an eventual virus-free future. And Sydney's thinking about that is so useful and so helpful. Um, obviously, we have this story linked for you in the show notes. I hope you can give it a read. Finally today, we'd like to discuss an article that ran in Jezebel this week about the problem with ballet corps. Um, because the fashion world has once again, honestly, this seems to happen every few years, but it's once again embraced ballet flats and leg warmers and leotards and tulle. They're all over the place. And what the article points out is that the fashion world's vision of ballet elevates a kind of upper class white femininity that's stereotypically associated with the art form, which, you know, that's a problem in itself. And then it also ignores the reckonings that real world ballet is having now with issues including sexism and racism and fat phobia. And none of those problems are new to anyone listening to this podcast. We've talked about them all extensively. But what we'd like to discuss today is what good ballet corps might look like. Um, Because what the fashion world is ultimately responding to and what it has responded to repeatedly for decades is the beauty of ballet. So, I mean, is there an ethical way for it to pay homage to that very real beauty? What responsibility do fashion brands have here? There are two issues that the writer really illuminates in this article. One is that a lot of fashion brands really don't bother to hire dancers to represent their ballet-inspired lines, but instead kind of Mm -hmm. stick skinny models in point shoes and awkward poses. And, um, you know, and that in itself just tells you that they're not paying attention (laughs) to to the dance industry. Um, And then there's also this question of how it borrows the aesthetic but doesn't acknowledge the uglier sides um, which has, you know, really been in a lot of the dance news in recent years. Um, part of me wonders how realistic it is to expect high-end fashion to f- to follow the dance industry that closely or care that much. Um, mm-hmm. But athleisure wares and athletic wear companies seem to be a lot more in touch with who dancers are, what they're doing, what they stand for, et cetera, um, than some of the higher fashion. Yeah. Um- I, I agree with you. I mean, I had similar thoughts in terms of, all right, so, I'm, but what, but really, what is the, the fashion world's responsibility here and how much should they be expected to know about these reckonings happening in ballet? And then I thought, frankly, a lot of these issues, lack of diversity, extremely thin bodies, these are issues that have also plagued fashion as a whole for right. decades. And it does seem like the fashion world is, I mean, slowly, very slowly, but starting to move away from those perspectives itself. So, what if we explored ballet corps from that angle too, instead of using it as a cover to like revert to those outdated aesthetic quote unquote ideals? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, let's offer a vision that like celebrates the inherent beauty of ballet technique without propping up those negative stereotypes. 
the article did include a, a great example of a recent Michael Kors campaign that featured Alicia Graf Mack and oh, her daughter. I love that campaign. <laughs> I, I love it. Her daughter, by the way, is a born dancer. You, you have to go to Alicia's Instagram account and see the videos <laughs> she's posted. She's just like made to do this. <laughs> I've also seen like India Bradley at New York City Ballet has done quite a bit of modeling. Um, and I think she's done something recently for Victoria's Secret for their more kind of athleisure line. Um, and then Michaela de Prince and I f- believe a few other dancers were in Nike's Own the Floor campaign. Mm-hmm. These are, of course, more like athletic lines, though, as opposed to high fashion takes on ballet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, kind of uh, stressing the the athleticism behind the dancer. Mm-hmm. I did see a recent spread with a uh, spread with Francesca Hayward of the Royal Ballet in Har- uh, Harper's Bazaar U- UK. That was quite nice. Yeah. We've also seen like um, Harper Waters from Houston Ballet do some great campaigns that play with femininity, that play with gender mm-hmm. a little bit. I mean, can you imagine how great a campaign with a non-binary dancer like a Maxfield Haynes or an Ashton mm-hmm. Edwards having them on point I mean, so many creative possibilities there yeah. that, that seem sort of in line with the types of experimenting that are happening elsewhere in the fashion world. Um, honestly, it seems like featuring dancers with larger bodies will probably be the last barrier to fall in fashion. Um, but I do hope that someday in the not too distant future, we start seeing people like Colleen Werner modeling not just for dance brands, but for fashion brands too. That would be such an important step forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the creative directors of these fashion houses, um, you know, if they don't do their research or don't care to do their research, it, I think it shows personally. <laughs> Some yeah, of these very, it absolutely does. Very awkward ad campaigns with um, non-dancers in particular. Which is so strange because high-level ballet dancers have never been more visible just everywhere. They're all over social media. It would not be hard to mm-hmm. find a brilliant ballet model for your ballet core campaign yeah yeah if you go to the instagram account account models doing ballet you can like you can really see this in action you can really see the you know very white idealized femininity as well as the you know the lack of professional dancers used in these creative Mm -hmm. uh, campaigns so yeah we'll link that in the show notes um long story short let's work our way towards a more thoughtful take on ballet core. Um, we have the link to the Jezebel story in the show notes as well. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks everyone for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Bye everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. 